Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdat Recaps. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita, and joining us as always is a plastic version of Peter Sagal today. <laughs> Someone made him an action figure, and that's what he's put on screen. Great. Great. I am not a toy. <laughs> Oh, that went so much better than I could possibly have fathomed. (laughs) So today, if you didn't already know, we are recapping the 1995 Pixar classic Toy Story. Trisha, were you able to actually watch it? I was. I mean, I was watching it uh, this morning from a McDonald's parking lot. Okay. So that I could (laughs) use the Wi-Fi. Because Utah's had a bit of a week. Yeah. No, I actually, I didn't know things were bad in Utah. Is it, is it in fact the same as it's been in the Pacific Northwest with lots of fires and smoke and apocalypse? No, it's a different apocalypse. Oh, what's this apocalypse? <laughs> Sorry. There's so many. Um, I, I will say I am, I am grateful that um, in my at least immediate vicinity, the wildfires, we're getting a lot of the smoke in the air, but we are not seeing uh, encroaching actual flames here in Salt Lake, at least. There are lots mm-hmm. of wildfires elsewhere in Utah. But what we had was hurricane force winds. Good Lord. So your internet's been out for days now. Yeah, my power was out for a day and a half. My internet has been out for most of the week. And uh, I'm, you know, very grateful and lucky that I didn't uh, sustain any property damage. Lots of people lost cars to down trees and, you know, had things land on their houses and things like that. Um, But it's been a bit of a week here. Yeah. But as with everything in Utah, you know, we've got weather, but it's a dry hurricane. (laughs) (laughs) So you did watch it in the McDonald's parking lot. I guess this is one where we should just be extra thankful that this movie is like a tight 81 minutes, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It does seem that in the end, we find out that your attention span matches exactly that of the average child. (laughs) (laughs) well now i mean i think partly the deal with this one being 81 minutes is like that took them 81 years to make right i mean early pixar Mm, yes it it is true yeah that this i mean one of the things that we should probably talk about is both how astounding an advance this was in animation and computer technology and graphics and how incredibly bad it looks now from a distance (laughs) of what 24 years it's both are true it's extraordinarily crude and bad looking and an amazing achievement of technology and art. So, Peter, when did you first see it? You saw it in 95 as a grown ass man? I saw it in 95 as a grown ass man. In fact, I vividly remember I was, unsurprisingly, at another playwrights conference. Uh, and <laughs> Peter, I, that's what how I did. many of these were there? I, I went My to a, I went goodness. to a, it just so happens that I went to a bunch, but they were all in the 90s and in the summer when movies they came out. So, in the 90s. and uh, I, we, we should talk about Braveheart. Like I said, that was another one we went to see. But <laughs> this one I remember very vividly because my then wife was visiting me at this playwrights conference and we decided to take the evening off from whatever was going on there and go see this movie because the buildup for this movie was really quite extraordinary. Um, I, I, again, I always fall into this role of like, let me tell you how it used to be, you youngsters. Mm-hmm. We're so friggin' psyched to hear what Peter's got to say about how things were when he was young. <laughs> that is apt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the idea of a movie 
entirely animated on computer was extraordinary and amazing and exciting. And people didn't know what it would be like and people didn't know if it was even possible. I mean, computer animation in movies had been very small. I mean, for example, Tron came out in 83. That was the first attempt. But Tron is set inside a computer for a good reason, because the only things they could create with computer graphics was stuff that looked like crude video games. So that was the gimmick they came up with to make that seem plausible, that it would look like that. Well, and and I mean, even thinking about what computers were able to do in 95, you know, like that was like heyday of dial-up internet. Like this was still like back in the day of computer tech. Yeah, this was really, yeah, this was, this was practically vacuum tubes and cables running across the floor. I mean, they, they, you know, they animated this on machines that had big reel-to-reel data tapes. Uh It was almost that level. And so nobody, and of course, it seems as if, and it's not exactly true, but it seems as if every animated movie since Toy Story has been done entirely in computers. So much for the fact, so much that when you see a, a hand, I don't even know if anybody does hand-drawn animation anymore. They do 2D animation. Yeah, I think people make shorts as a form of art in 2D animation yes. now, but yeah, for feature films, I don't think we've seen it in a long time. Yeah. And and of course, uh, you know, one of the things that Pixar, but not only Pixar has done is since then, is they have advanced the art of computer animation in huge leaps and bounds. Um one of the things I'm mildly proud of is a friend of mine from elementary school was one of the key uh, scientists at Pixar who, uh, who, among other things, invented a way to do Sully's hair in the movie Monsters, Inc. <laughs> hair is one of the hardest things. Yeah. 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 It, 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 I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, I am far from an expert. So this is a very crude understanding of how animation works and why computer animation is so useful is that if you want to animate, say, uh, 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 somebody walking, you have to, it's just like when we think of stop motion animation, you move it a little, you take a picture, you move it a little, take a picture. It's the same thing drawing. You draw a person and his leg is moved and his leg is moved and his leg is moved a little and his leg is moved a little and his leg is moved a little. And if you show it in 24 frames per second, it looks like he's walking. But the thing that we don't think about is that, uh, in in life, it's not just his leg that's moving, right? If it's a, if it's a person, it's his clothes, it's his hair. Yeah. But in animation, you can't you can't draw a picture in which the folds of his clothing shift as he moves his leg. Which is why mm-hmm. these characters are toys and not children, exactly, right. and not right. dogs and squirrels and rabbits and whatever. Which is like, why the people look the weirdest things, right? Yeah. That yeah. is exactly yeah. the reason why it's a movie about toys because toys are made of plastic and they don't have parts that flop around. And you can see the problems when you see the kids, like the, the hair on the kids doesn't move. It's like Bugs Bunny's hair, if three-dimensional. Yeah. So you can see the limitations even as they advanced it. And then, of course, you look at you know animated movies now and the water flows and the hair changes and yeah, fabric Moana ripples. Yeah, is a great example of that. Yeah, I think. exactly. Yeah. And that's all... Yeah, Moana is amazing because it's all the water animation, and and now you see they can do almost anything. It's ex- extraordinary. So, Trisha, when did you first see Toy Story? I don't have a specific memory, but I, if I didn't see it in theaters, I would have seen it immediately when it came out on VHS. Yeah, because um, I would have been eight when this movie came out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Peter's smirking. I am. I'm smirking. Um, so I'm smirking is... though in an affectionate way, Trisha. That I just want you to know. <laughs> but so this was a movie where I was basically the age it was meant That's for when prime. it came out, yep. right? Yep. That was prime Toy Story yeah. viewing at a at a theater age. And your parents didn't say, "Hey, kids, there's this amazing new kids movie. Let's all go see it." Maybe, but also eight was the year I got glasses. So until mm-hmm. I got those glasses, I couldn't really see anything for a while. So <laughs> well, I have, that's why you needed the big screen. <laughs> well, I had I had liter I have literally blurry memories oh, of the yep, ages of totally. like seven to eight. 
That's amazing. <laughs> when I was young, the world was very fuzzy. So it's possible that I saw it but didn't enjoy it much because I couldn't sit close enough to oh. it. Oh. <laughs> That's amazing. And Greta, how about you? I similarly, I know I saw it early, but I can't remember distinctly. I, I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater, but I can't I can't remember exactly. You saw it as a child, though, right? They took I saw it as a child. Yeah, I was 10 when right. I saw it. I, I should say, you know, I, I told you I saw it as a grown-ass adult in the theater when it came out. But I, unlike every other movie we've talked about, this is also a movie I've seen, uh, let me think, let me, uh, an infinite amount of times. <laughs> because when my now pretty much grown children were small, we watched it constantly and yeah. we went out and we saw the sequels in the theater just like every other family with small kids during the Pixar era. Yeah, I I wondered about that part too because I, I I'm pretty sure I saw Toy Story 2 in the theater cuz that came out in 99. Mm-hmm. So I would have been 14. I'm pretty sure I saw that, but then I didn't see Toy Story 3 until much later and I have not yet seen Toy Story 4. I mean, that was one question I had for y'all is like I think Toy this is a great movie. Did we need four of them? Uh, I can I can argue that we need three of them. I haven't seen the fourth. <laughs> yeah. I'm told it's pretty good. Um, and, you know, it's weird for me uh, just to sort of give you a slight little glimpse into my emotional life. Because these movies were such a, a huge part of my kids growing up and my experience mm-hmm. with my kids, it's been hard for me to sit down and watch Toy Story 4 by myself. So I haven't, haven't done that. I do think that Toy Story 2 and 3 are definitively better than most animated sequels or most sequels to mm-hmm. any stories. I think yeah. that Toy Story 2, I think, has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes or nearly 100%. And uh, Toy Story 3 is just... That one, I feel like, really is for uh, kids, but also for us growing up and, you know, like empty nester parents and kids going off to college, right? There's kind of the themes of that one, and it really punches you in the yeah, gut. Yeah, I saw that one in my early... Or maybe, I guess it was like my late 20s when I saw that one and I was back home over Christmas and I watched it with my parents one night randomly and I remember just like sobbing my eyes yes. out. Yes. I, I, have, I, have, I have a particular take on Toy Story 3, but one of the things that's interesting is just like Harry Potter, which for a particular generation of kids were the same age as Harry Potter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When, the, when each different book came out, there were people who grew up with Toy Story so that when they saw the first movie, they were a child and when they saw Toy Story 3, they were going off to college. And so for them, yeah. their emotional, their own emotional maturity matched the emotional maturity and deepening of the movies, which is pretty cool. Can I tell y'all about something that I thought I knew about Toy Story, but then I was completely mind blown when Toy Story 4 came out because I realized the casting that was in my head was actually incorrect. Okay. Hmm. So Tim Allen plays Buzz Lightyear. Yes, he does. Mm-hmm. I thought it was George Clooney the entire time. Wow. <laughs> The whole time? Did you think Tim Allen was in Ocean's Eleven? <laughs> no, no. Okay. And it so as I learned this, I was trying to figure out why on earth I thought that it was George Clooney. And I do think their voices are actually kind of similar. They are. I mean, when George Clooney is doing his pompous characters like he sometimes does right, for the Coen exactly, brothers. Right, exactly, yeah. But the other thing that I think was part of it is that Buzz Lightyear actually looks a lot like George Clooney. <laughs> I don't know. No, he yeah, doesn't. Yes, they do. The like their chin situations, they have very similar chins, you guys. Does he have a does George Clooney believe. have a little bizarre swirl in the middle of his chin? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's yeah, got he that does. same I don't know what that, that is. I, I I all I can tell you is that uh as as you know, I'm bald and at one point I shaved my head 
and put on some kind of like high collared shirt. Maybe it was even a turtleneck. And everybody looked at me and said, because I have these fairly expressive eyebrows. And everybody said, oh, my God, <laughs> you look like Buzz Lightyear. And I looked in the mirror and I really did. And it was quite terrifying. <laughs> and I never put on that shirt again. Were you delightful or terrified? I was terrified, terrified because yeah. <laughs> there's just something about that little head coming out of the spacesuit that you don't want to emulate. Yeah. 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 So I do feel like we should mention that this movie very much does not pass the Bechdel test. Oh, God, no. Absolutely not. Uh, geez. No. Although yeah. I don't know. I mean, I mean, does the tea party, does Sid's sister's tea party count? <laughs> no. <laughs> if Peter's opinion falls in the forest, does anybody give a shit? No, and, and and part of that, and this is obviously something they were aware of because one of the first things they did in Toy Story 2 was to introduce a significant female character. In this movie, the only, God, the only female toy is little Bo Peep. Who's yeah, there, who, who's, who's like a mm-hmm. super sex object. Yeah, which is weird for a kid's movie. Is like the first, the only thing you learn about little Bo Peep is she wants to bone She's Woody. And that's just a little weird. But yes, mm-hmm. it is. It, and then, of course, there's all these vague characters in the background. There's Laurie Metcalf is Andy's mom. Really? Mm-hmm. I see. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 One of my favorite Chicago theater actors. Yes. Laurie Metcalf. And you never, you don't even see her head, if I'm not mistaken. You never, certainly never go to look at her face. Yeah, it's kind of like the Muppet Babies, where you only see the nanny's feet. Yeah, exactly. You know? mm-hmm. Like the parents don't really totally exist. So no, this. Well, but the, most of the kids are like that too, except the kids we yeah, know. Yeah. The only, I mean, this is, and I was thinking this because you and I, the three of us, have criticized a bunch of the movies we've talked about as being bro movies, movies about bros, bros before hoes, whatever. Uh, Jeff Goldblum and. Um, Oh, help, Will Smith in Independence Day, et cetera. This is two, but it's a really good one, meaning that it's not only enjoyable, but it actually is like, oh, yes, if if you're going to do a movie about a bromance, this is a good one because it's a good bromance. There is more emotional growth between these two toys than there are in any two men in any Quentin Tarantino movie. Exactly. That, <laughs> I mean, and this, and this is my whole thesis about the movie. I'll let it go early is that this is a movie about two characters, two men, two males, two whatever, male toys, who find out that in order to like be in the world, they have to grow and they have to give up stuff. And they have to admit things about themselves to other people and they have to be vulnerable and they have to think about more things in their own position, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they do it. Oh my gosh, is this all, is Woody a metaphor for giving up privilege? You know, That's deep, man. No, I'm not. I'm not mocking you. No. I think I'm like thinking about it now and going like, whoa. In a way, I mean, I don't know if there's any sort of racial, socioeconomic thing going on, although there might be. I mean, Making room for another white guy. <laughs> yeah, in a weird way, I mean, the, the, the it's and, a step in the right direction. Yeah, Andy's Andy's toys are in a hierarchy, and Woody is absolutely on top of it. And the great problem he has is his position is uh, taken away from him, and he panics and he freaks. So yeah, maybe it is about privilege, but. In the end, but they set up Woody and in a different way, Buzz in a great way because the only way these guys are ever going to get what they ultimately want is to give up stuff, is to give up their position, is to give and up and to work together with the other to toys who are not yeah. on the top of the heap, right? Which is exactly why uh, this movie and surprised the hell out of me when it happened the first time, but it continues to happen every time. Is that at the end of the movie when they start to fly? Mm-hmm. And the rocket goes off, and instead of plummeting to the earth, they start to fly, and Woody says, we're flying! And Buzz says, this isn't flying, this is falling with style. <laughs> I burst into tears. Aww. 
every damned time. <laughs> yeah, I started tearing up like three minutes in. I was yep. like, okay, we're doing this. <laughs> and partly, I think, unlike you two, I have not seen this. Like, I've probably, I don't know, I've maybe seen this movie a handful of times. Like, I can't remember the last time I've seen it. And so it was really interesting watching it again as an adult. And one of the main takeaways I had was that um, these guys are actually co-workers, hmm. which like that framing of all the toys in Andy's room, I had not picked up on as a little kid. And even like in the very beginning, Woody calls a staff meeting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which I just thought was hilarious. We actually, we have audio of it. Let's listen. Uh, oh, yes. One uh, minor note here. Andy's birthday party has been moved to today. Uh, next we have... What do you mean the party's today? His birthday's not till next week. What's going on down there? Is his mom losing her marbles? Well, obviously, she wanted to have the party before the move. I'm not worried. You shouldn't be worried. Of course Woody ain't worried. He's been Andy's favorite since kindergarten. Come on, guys. Every Christmas and birthday we go through this. But what Andy gets another dinosaur? A mean one. I just don't think I can take that kind of rejection. <laughs> hey, listen. No one's getting replaced. This is Andy we're talking about. What matters is that we're here for Andy when he needs us. That's what we're made for, right? Pardon me. I hate to break up the staff meeting, but they're here! Birthday guests at 3 o'clock! Well, is Sean stealing yet another movie? Yeah, I know. He, he, maybe he's. Maybe we should do him. Like, just give into it and say the films Wallace of Wallace Shawn. <laughs> I'm, I'm up for it again. Half of my favorite celebrity couple because Deborah Eisenberg is one of my favorite writers. There you are. We should point out that the uh, ham, the piggy bank, is voiced by John Ratzenberger, who mm-hmm. I, I think this is the first one it, it, since then he appears in every Pixar movie. He's sort of like their good luck charm. They have to find no. a way to work. He has at least one line in every Pixar movie that has been made since then, which is all of them. <laughs> I mean, I think what's also such a pleasure about this movie is that it's just so full of charm. And the way they've thought out how each toy would come to life is like at times it's hilarious, right? I mean, those the army men and the way like the plastic things are still stuck to their feet. So they have to kind of waddle yes. along. It's just mm-hmm. like it's just so perfect. I remember reading that the animators strapped boards to their feet and ran up and down the <laughs> halls of Pixar trying to figure out what that would be like, trying to walk with your feet strapped to a board. It's great. I mean, and and, and uh, we could go, I mean, we could fill this whole podcast just praising details, but they thought so much about things from toys perspective what would toys do what would toys think about that what would toys be worried about and how big the world is you know it's just awesome one of the things i I love about the opening of the movie is during randy newman's song which became iconic you've got a friend in me you see andy playing with his toys and there are two great things first of all they knew from from jump that children don't play with toys the way they're supposed to play with toys right Right. If you've got yes. a, if you've got a cowboy, you don't just pretend he's a cowboy. You do whatever you want with him. You make the piggy bank the villain. Who cares? And the second thing is how that sequence shows Andy playing with Woody and misbehaving, like beating the hell out of him, which is another <laughs> thing kids do to toys. But every now and then you see a shot from Woody's perspective, sliding down the mm-hmm. banister, that's uh, when flying I through the air. <laughs> Even though Woody at that point is inanimate, and that's yep. setting you up for that amazing moment when the when he leaves the room and the toys all of a sudden get up. Well, and even then, just that little smile on his face, you know, it's just so easy to infer that he's having such a great time being thrown around. You yes, know? That, that this is his purpose in this life. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and this is kind of fun because they, they, they explored it a little bit in the two, well, they explored it a lot, actually, in Toy Story 2, is the existential dilemma of being a toy. 
And one of the things I love about the movie, and of course, like all great rules, it is broken in the best way toward the end of the movie, is the fact that all the toys, even Buzz Lightyear, who does not know he's a toy, instinctively become inanimate when a human enters the room. We all know that. Safety first. first. They just, they just, <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like the prime directive of being a toy that you cannot break. Although I love the fact that, you know, when, at the end of the movie, when Woody says, we're going to have to break a few rules and that's mm-hmm. what he means. We're all going to start moving where they can see us. Mm-hmm. So even you understand it's all like, it, it, even though it's the absolute thing you have, first thing, thing one you have to do when you're a toy, they all know that it's voluntary and they can break it. And I just love that sort mm-hmm. of existence where they sort of operate under this, this, ethics system that they're still aware of well yeah that is nice actually and it also makes them seem less like as as human as they feel and as sentient as they are in this movie it also that being a voluntary choice also makes it feel less um like they're under the human's thumb like they're they're here for andy because they love andy (laughs) right not because they must do whatever andy says at all times it's original sin and free will guys been a little weird we heard actually woody say something he says but we gotta you know we're here for andy that's what we're made for they know they're toys except for buzz so so andy is god is what you're saying andy isn't so much yeah Andy isn't so much god he is like the purpose of their lives which for a lot of people is god (laughs) yeah i guess so but i I think of it more like i mean i don't know what you like uh, somebody who's a multi-generation or farmer and he says my purpose in this life is to take care of this land that's what i'm here to do they're the stewards of his childhood right that's what they're that's what they're born to do and of course the question of well what happens when the kid grows up is the theme and substance of the two sequels Right. And well, and even. Oh, great. I was just going to um, throw a wrench in your God argument by saying that I think for most people for whom God is that important, God is also omnipotent. Whereas the toys, in some ways, are smarter and more mature and can outfox the humans, and particularly Andy. So I don't know that people who think of someone they need to be devoted to often as somebody that they are smarter than and can outwit yeah. well, in that same breath, right? Well, I don't know if there's outwitting necessarily, but what I, I mean, I think. Having taken a lot of theology classes, God is omnipotent, but the idea of free will and original sin is exactly that, I think, is the ability to make the choice of, like, we have the power to defy God, right? It's up to us whether or not we do. God gave that to us. And I think that is kind of a strong parallel, actually. It's kind of the problem in, I've only seen Toy Story 3 once, um, and I can tell you why, but Toy Story 3 kind of copes with that because there's that one toy who I think is voiced by Ned Beatty, is it like Hug-A-Bear, whatever his name is, who has turned his back on God, who has turned his back on children, who was so embittered yeah. by what happened to him that he is given He is, is kind of up. a fallen toy. Yeah, he's like yeah, a fallen angel. Yeah, yeah. He's almost like Satan. He's like, he is rebelling against the gods of the gods of toys, which are children. And that's, so they, they were all aware of this. There's a lot of deep thought that goes into these Pixar so, movies. So speaking of awareness, something that you've talked about or that you've brought up a couple times, Peter, that really got me thinking last night, having seen it for the first time as an adult, is why are like why are most toys existentially aware, but Buzz is not? Is it just because he's fresh out of the box? Like, does every toy go through that where they well, think could- they're part of a larger narrative and then somebody has to shake them at a gas station and say, you're just a toy, you know? You are a toy. <laughs> let's, let's listen to a it. A child plaything. <laughs> let's listen to it and then <laughs> and then y'all can address my concerns. Emperor Zerg has been secretly building a weapon with the destructive capacity to annihilate an entire planet. I alone have information that reveals this weapon's 
only weakness. And you, my friend, are responsible for delaying my rendezvous with Star Command! You are a toy! You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear, you're, a, you're an action figure! You are a child's plaything! You are a sad, strange little man. <laughs> Farewell. Uh, uh, honest to God, put that up there. With this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Put this up there with anything in cinema. You can't handle it's the truth. Excellent. Exactly. I love that so much. I, I don't know the answer to your question. I wonder what the Pixar people would say. In Toy Story 2, you meet another Buzz Lightyear who's right out of the box, and he is the same delusion, which our Buzz Lightyear can use to his advantage. I mean, it's very advantage. charming. It's just, I, I just wondered kind of what the mechanics of that were. And I put it to Twitter, and our buddy Jesse Duke said maybe it's because... Buzz Lightyear is part of a bigger, like a franchise that he, yeah. but like if Woody has Jesse later, then obviously Woody is part of a franchise too, yeah, right? Yeah, they're, they're so, all mass produced toys. Exactly. So, you know. so I don't, I don't know. It was just a, a thing that got me. And it, I mean, obviously it's a great plot device for this narrative structure, but I was just like. But did Rex think he was a real dinosaur until somebody told him he wasn't? Right. You know, like, and does that explain why Rex is so emotionally fragile? <laughs> <laughs> You know, is that part of like the toy condition that you like think you're part of this world and then you have to be told you're just a toy? Because that's also got some amazing theological connotations. Exactly. I'm sure there are people shouting at their, I don't know, podcast machines right now, (laughs) because one of the things I'm aware of about Toy Story 4 that we I haven't none of us apparently have seen is that in that movie, uh, the child makes a toy out of a, a spork. Sporky. Yeah. And and thus that character wakes up and all of a sudden is like, oh my god, what am I? Am I a fork? Am wow. I a toy? I don't know. Huh. And I'm sure they they and, they examine that issue quite extensively. I would imagine. And Greta, that. it's voiced by Tony Hale. Oh, that's adorable, Buster Bluth. Yes. Yeah. And, or yeah. as I like to think of him, Psycho from Harley Quinn. <laughs> or as I like to think of him as the Bagman from Veep. Yes, lipstick. <laughs> what is the color of that lipstick? Anyway, okay, let's take a break and then we'll listen to a voicemail. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Let's listen to a voicemail. This is Sarah. Hi, Nerdette and Peter. This is Sarah Rebecca from Chicago. I was five years old when Toy Story came out, and my relationship with that movie has become the stuff of family legends. (laughs) When Sid came on screen and started torturing toys, I started screaming, and screaming and screaming, and would not stop screaming until I was forcibly removed from the movie theater by my parents. After which I refused to ever watch Toy Story again. And so for a large majority of my life, I knew that it had to end well because there were sequels, but really had no idea what happened. And after a while, it became a very weird source of pride, right, to be of the generation that this movie was made for and to never have seen it. But I finally caved last year at the age of 29 
it's really good. And Sid is still really, really scary. And my mom is in the process of moving out of the apartment that we mm. lived in for 28 years in Brooklyn. Um, and it's really interesting to think about, you know, all of my old toys and hoping that they all have moving buddies. Uh. So, yeah. Toy Story and I have a tumultuous relationship, but I'm glad that I've seen it. Uh. Thanks. Isn't that wild? That's I mean, I think we all lovely. have those movies that we saw probably too soon and that completely terrified us. But to think of it being Toy Story is pretty hilarious. Uh, I'm going to tell a story about myself that when my daughters were young, we, we used to what we used to do is we used to have dinner and, and then we'd go see a movie sometimes. And I decided it would be fun to watch Ghostbusters. And uh, they said to me, is it scary? And I said, no, it's funny. I said, don't <laughs> worry about it. It's about ghosts, but it's funny. And I sent them upstairs to watch it while I finish up the dishes, because I've, of course, seen it many times. I can miss the beginning. And I forgot something, which is that there is one legit scare in Ghostbusters. And that's yep. at the very beginning in the library where the, where the quiet librarian goes, turns suddenly into a monster and comes right at the screen. Mm. And I think that's intentional. They threw up a scare in the beginning of the movie so that you'd be on edge for the rest of it. But I had forgotten about that. So I'm doing there doing my dishes. Oh. And all of a sudden I hear... <laughs> from the attic where the TV is. And all of a sudden, these footsteps racing down the stairs of three very upset young ladies who who I think literally to this day have never forgiven me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sid is pretty scary. And it's interesting to have the scary character be another kid too, right? It's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a real jerk. He also sleeps with his shoes on. Did y'all notice that? Yes, I did notice that. He do, he, he he doesn't get he under the covers. He out of bed. And, he hops out of bed. He never takes his clothes off to put on jammies. I mean, they must have... One of the things that I know about Pixar is that their storytelling process is incredibly iterative. They just go over stuff and go over stuff and go over stuff and go over stuff before they settle on it. So you just know that in the story process, and they call it that story, yeah. they must have thought endlessly about everything about Sid. Like, what has he wear? What, what, I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that, that like, somebody decided, you know what? He doesn't get into pajamas. He just jumps into bed, falls asleep, gets up because he's so eager to do more atrocity. That's what kind of monster this is. A yeah. monster who doesn't wear pajamas. <laughs> I mean, the other thing we remember about animated movies is nothing is left to chance. Everything they do, right. they had to decide to do. There is no Daenerys coffee cup. Exactly. In an animated movie. Precisely. And and the other thing, of course, is I would love to to have been there. I'm sure it's written down somewhere that Pixar is so storied now. In the process of them deciding about the, 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 the mutated or tortured toys. Yeah. How can we make them scary enough so that they're scary when we first see them, but then we can accept them as friends and allies when we need to? And I'm sure, like, the archives of Pixar are filled with dozens and dozens of different ideas about what those toys were. And they must have gone through that sequence a number of times to try to get just what they figured was the right balance, where obviously for our, our caller who was five was too scary, but for the vast majority of kids was just scary enough. Mm -hmm. So you're like, oh, it's scary. Oh, God, oh, it's scary. But oh, no, they turn out to be really nice. And that's the thing. So. I mean, kids are weirder and darker than most people remember or are willing to admit, right? Like as somebody who yes. has nannied a lot and done a lot of those things, like kids will say dark things. They will put their, their toys in dark situations. And I think that narrative play is how they learn to be afraid and then get over it, right? Right. Be exactly. scared and then move through it. And that that's actually yeah. an, an important way of learning but for Sid I think he's just a psychopath 
He's <laughs> going to grow up to torture other things. Uh, Peter, so you managed to solicit some thoughts from one of your friends at Pixar, Pete Doctor, who was head animator on Toy Story. Want to tell us about him? Yeah, I've I've known Pete for a while. He is uh, an incredibly nice man um, who ended up being a movie mogul. He's now the head of Pixar. Without ever meaning to, he was an animator. That was his interest. And he landed in the early 90s with this new company uh, that Steve Jobs had set up. He'd bought it from Lucasfilm to start doing. I think the initial purpose of Pixar was to actually make hardware, huh? Uh, like uh, graphic hmm. workstations, dedicated workstations. But uh, it evolved into a studio to make movies. Pete fell in with him as an animator. Uh, he's credited on Toy Story as head animator. He's gone on to himself direct uh, Monsters, Inc., Up!, Inside Out and the movie Soul, which was supposed to have been released in the spring, but we all know why that didn't happen and will be out hopefully soon. So what's great about Pete is that he, and I say this as his friend, is that he was never somebody who wanted to be famous, powerful, or rich, all of which he arguably is. He just <laughs> wanted to make really, really good movies, and I like to think he has succeeded. Yeah, he's made me cry at a lot of movies. Yes, Those he movies has. you listed, holy cow. A great many movies, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the first. Let's talk about the first twelve minutes of Up, shall we? <laughs> oh, God. Oh. So yeah, he left us a couple different notes, but the one that I thought was really delightful and kind of surprising was Tom Hanks, just because I think we think of him as like Tom Hanks as always has always been as famous as Tom Hanks is, uh, but Pete Doctor kind of spins that a little bit. So let's listen. I remember we pitched uh, the concept to Tom Hanks. Uh, Tom Hanks, let's see, I think at the time had done, well, the the reason we cast him was his immortal work on Turner and Hooch, uh, <laughs> and specifically his freaking out, which we just thought was hilarious when the dog like eats the car and he's having a meltdown. Uh, he's really good. He's uh, hilarious. And then, of course, yeah, he can act pretty well, too. Um, <laughs> but he came in, we were pitching, and he kept wanting to leave. And, and I were like, I don't know, is this good? Uh, is he is he on board? He was smiling and nodding a lot. Um, later, uh, he told the story about, like, he was already sold. Like, he, we didn't need to pitch him. So he was like, yeah, I'm in. And we just kept going. And he's like, yeah, I'm in. So <laughs> I think maybe we oversold it. But in the, in the long run, you know, while we were working on the film, and this was the first one that I think Toy Story took about four years from concept to finish, maybe three and a half. Um, he went on to do all these other films, you know, at the same time, and his fame skyrocketed, and we were still plugging away on this little thing. So by the time the film came out, you know, it's not like people didn't know who he was to begin with. He's already a a great actor, but um, he had done all this work. It felt like lifetimes worth of work while we were still just making this little cartoon. <laughs> I love the fact that that's why they cast Tom Hanks because he's so good at freaking out. One of the things I found out is they do this interesting kind of casting at Pixar. They're making the movie. They have crude versions, sometimes hand-drawn and hand-animated of what and they're, they're like, who does Buzz Lightyear look like? George Clooney. Well, actually, what they do, what they do is they take audio of prior performances of a particular actor, mm -hmm. and they yep. animate yep. the character they want him to play to that audio. Huh. So then you can sit and you can say, okay, here's Buzz Lightyear doing some, like maybe it was, I have no idea what it was, Tim Allen comedy bit or some of his dialogue from one of his TV shows to see how it sounds. That's how they cast wow. a Patton Oswalt. I remember hearing this in, in, in is the lead, the hero of Ratatouille. Because they loved how enthusiastic 
Patton Oswalt sounded when he <laughs> talked about things that he loved. Aww. Yeah, so th- there was just like something from him in his stand-up talking about Star Wars, and they're like, this guy should do a monologue about eating strawberries and cheese together. Right, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. They said, listen to his voice. Listen to how sincere and excited he is about the thing that he loves. That's the character they wanted yeah. for that character. And uh, that's the, I guess, character they wanted for the character. I guess that makes grammatic sense. Uh, <laughs> and that's how they cast. So somewhere in the archives are like animated monologues from all these famous actors <laughs> animated to characters that they that they either did or didn't end up playing. Yeah, I had read about that for this where it was actually a scene from Turner and Hooch that was the original sort of Woody screencast. And I think that that's what they showed Tom Hanks to try to explain to him because, again, this probably would have been, you know, uh, before anybody had seen any animation like this. So they wanted to show him like, no, it'll look good. Like, it'll you'll like how this works. It's great. Here's you as Turner and Hooch scene. Here's your, tur- <laughs> here's your Turner and Hooch scene where you freak out probably since that's what they loved. Maybe they used one of his freak out scenes from that. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's pretty fascinating. It, I mean, it's worth, it's worth noting too, that like some of this really early computer animation, when he talks about that three and a half, four years, that yeah. it would have been them working all around the clock Yes, to do that. Totally. And he talks too about how, uh, like Disney very close was, was very close to pulling the plug several times because it just took so long. And they couldn't agree, it sounds like, on the tone of the movie, that it was turning into a camel horse designed by committee situation mm. at one point, and they shut down, right? They shut down production, and the, the fate of all those years of work up to that point were in jeopardy. Yeah. There was a moment that I, I don't think Pete talked about in his voicemails to us, but I remember reading about in the, in the commemorative book of Toy Story that I own, where... <laughs> They did a, they did, I don't know what you called it. It was like a, maybe, a, I guess you'd call a first draft of the movie, a, a rough cut. And they sat and they watched it. And and I think, well, I think Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was an executive at Disney at the time, takes credit for this. He says, this is terrible. You have to start over. Oof. And one of the problems they had, I remember very vividly, there might have been others, is that in the original version of the sequence in which uh, Bud, Buzz goes out the window and can't go to the pizza planet because he's lost at uh-huh. that moment. In the original version, Woody just pushes him out oh. the window. And they were, and apparently Katzenberg claims it was him, maybe it was other people who said, no, you, now I hate him. Yeah. Yeah. Now I hate the hero of your movie. So that whole sequence of Woody trying just to knock Buzz behind the desk and it ends up him flying out the window, that was all redone and recreated. Mm-hmm. So the same thing happens, but Woody didn't really mean to do it. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, Tom Hanks has been quoted as saying that in some of those early drafts, he was concerned too, that the characters were just too much of a jerk to each other and that Mm. it was too cynical and sort of adult and not actually sort of um, childlike enough that like the the stakes need to have some like reality to them, but not, not just mean people being mean to each other all the time. This is actually a good time to mention something that I and a lot of other people have loved about Pixar movies, which is that they work simultaneously and in parallel for kids and adults. The Mm -hmm. same, and and it's weird because it's so integrated. A lot of times you see a movie like, say, Shrek, and there are some jokes that a kid just doesn't get, Mm -hmm. but they're there for the parent, so the parent can enjoy them. And you're like, wait a minute, that's cheating. You know, Mm. you're winking at me. But the great thing about Pixar movies is they're integrated. So, like, look at Wood, Woody and Buzz. Kids can understand it as as two kids who don't get along and who squabble like siblings. 
adults can understand it like the worst workplace <laughs> uh, relationship you've ever had. And it works both ways. And so everybody can groove to it. I think that's just an amazing achievement. Yeah, I think that speaks to another clip we've got, which is when during the tea party, when Buzz has just realized that he's not really the only Buzz Lightyear and he's like given up on life, essentially. And Woody's trying to pep talk him. Buzz, hey, Buzz, are you okay? Gone! It's all gone. Oh, it's gone. Bye-bye. Who's here? What happened to you? One minute you're defending the whole galaxy, and suddenly you find yourself sucking down Darjeeling with Marie Antoinette and her little sister. <laughs> I think you've had enough tea for today. You know what, Greta? Let's that does sound like Clooney. Doesn't it? Thank you. <laughs> you see the hat? I am Mrs. Nesbitt. <laughs> Snap out of it, Buzz! I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you're right. I am just a little depressed. That's all. I, I, I can get through this. Oh, I'm a sham. Shh, look at Quiet, me. Buzz. I can't even fly out of a window. But the hat looked good. Tell me the hat looked good. The apron is a bit much. Out the head. window, Buzz. You're a genius. <laughs> come on, come on. This way. Years of academy training wasted. I love that he can't let go of the fact that he still thinks he's a spaceman, even then. <laughs> Years of Academy. Something we should say is we, we focus so much on the visuals of, I guess, all animated movies, especially Pixar. Uh, we don't think as much about the audio and listening to it. You focus only on that. One thing everybody probably is aware of is that whole conversation. Tom Hanks and Tim Allen were not in the same room or doing that at the same time. They each were standing in studios at Pixar in Emeryville, California, mm. uh, doing their lines to a producer or perhaps even John Lasseter himself. And what you heard was an amazing collage of the very best takes of each of their sessions. So it's quite possible that the beginning of a sentence that you heard Tim Allen say is from a different session oh, than the end wild. of the sentence. That they are extraordinarily careful and art, artful about putting together this dialogue. Not to mention the music. As an audio producer, that really stresses me out. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's incredibly precise. And I think and they did they did occasionally meet to do like maybe it wasn't for the actual recording, but they they did form a really close friendship. It sounds like working on that first film together, and it, yeah. they've been um, George think, and Tom. Yeah, George, George Clooney and Tom George. Hanks, mm -hmm. and uh, and I think they did do some things in the same room, but maybe that was more as rehearsal than the actual recording. And then it's it certainly, um, the story goes that in Toy Story 3, they weren't even in the same place at the same time at all for some of those last scenes between Woody and Buzz. And Tim Allen reached out to Tom Hanks and said like, have you done it yet? Because I did it a few days ago and I'm still wrecked. Because it was so yeah. emotional for them because they didn't mm -hmm. think there was going to be a four. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think I think those... It's it's also got to be so interesting for both of them. They're probably face famous enough, which is maybe a phrase I just made up, but feels right. Um, <laughs> yeah. That they don't get to exist in the world sort of anonymously like some uh, radio personalities do a little more until somebody hears their voice. But they have both also told great stories about um, being out in the world and, a, you know, meeting a kid who clearly, you know, is holding a Woody toy or like wearing a Buzz t-shirt or something and doing the voice and having the kid's eyes just get huge and oh, go like, oh, that. 
just oh, like yeah. what well, it's you it really is you kind <laughs> oh of like like when when robin williams as peter pan grown up and hook goes back to neverland and at first oh, they're wow. not sure if it's really huh. him and then they're like it is you peter like we see you you know so it's, it's like it's almost as good as hook when it happens i think <laughs> Oh, you mean it's almost as good as a moment where the character who stands in for the director, who's, of course, completely ignored his children, is discovered by the avatars for his children that he's really Peter Pan grown up. So therefore, all the time he spent away was worth it. Is all that right. what you mean? Well, on that note, I think we should call it. Okay, so that wraps up this season of Nerd at Recaps, but that doesn't mean things are over. We've been thinking a lot about what comes next, and we would love to hear from you, especially if you have any like theme suggestions for us. Yeah. Like, should we do a batch of sports movies or mysteries or the complete works of Wallace Shawn? Whatever it is, let us know. You can tweet at us. Peter's at Peter Sagal. Trisha is at Trisha Bobita, and I am at Greta M. Johnson. Let's keep the conversation going over there. Yeah, this has been awfully fun. I would, I, I would, I would argue slash discuss slash even agree about anything. With you Aww. Aww. Now we need the nice jingle. Yeah, play a goddamn jingle about <laughs> that, Justin. Wait, do we have a nice one? Where's the nice one? I can't believe that I'm about to say these words aloud. I agree with Peter. That's a nice note to end on, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> To infinity and, and beyond. The show is produced by me along with Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. Thanks to Sarah and Pete Doctor for the awesome voicemails. Our theme music is composed by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.